Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a vast assortment of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention by Manning Marable or Tinkers by Paul Harding, both of which won the Pulitzer Prize. And hey, uh, just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is a positive experience. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is a show about writers. This is a show about the struggle. Thank you for being here. It's nice to be with you as always. It is nice to be talking directly into your brain. Uh, what is first? Well, I've been getting a lot of email lately. And thanks to everybody for sending word. Please know that I do try my best to respond in good time. Thanks for all the tweets and for all the Facebook messages. All of it is greatly appreciated. I want to share one particular letter that I received from a guy named Jerry just the other day. He writes, Hey Brad, long-time listener, first-time writer here. I am also from Indiana, and I think we're virtually the same age. I've often wondered where exactly you're from in Indiana. Couldn't find out anything about it online. And then I was listening to your interview with Jamie Attenberg this morning on my way to work, which, by the way, this is all taking place in Los Angeles. You and I have a lot in common. And you mentioned playing tag in a shopping mall. And then I was like, this guy has to be from the same place as me. Was this mall by any chance the Tippecanoe Mall in Lafayette, <clears throat> excuse me, Lafayette, Indiana? Thanks. Keep up the good work. Yours, Jerry. 
So, hey, Jerry, uh, let me just kind of try to clarify this. I was born in Milwaukee, and then I moved to Indiana when I was in sixth grade. And I also lived in San Francisco when I was very young for just a couple of years. But mostly it was the Midwest in my youth. And I lived in a suburb of Indianapolis for about seven years in a town called Carmel, which is just north of the city. And the mall that I used to go to, the mall where I played tag during my adolescence, was called Castleton, the Castleton Shopping Center. So hopefully that helps uh, bring this into uh, focus for you. And for anyone listening who is confused at all by this exchange, just listen to episode 115 with Jamie Attenberg, the monologue. I go over the fact that I played tag in shopping malls as a teenager. Uh, quick reminder now for the official Other People app. The show has its own official app available for free for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's got all the bells and whistles. Go get it, folks. It's free. And what else has been happening? Well, uh, it's been a rough week for me at work. I'll tell you that. Uh, that's the truth of it. My book, this novel that I've been working on for the past two years, the one I thought I was almost done with, it, it sort of came apart on me this week. It sort of unraveled suddenly. Sort of, uh, I, I sort of came to the stunning realization that the end of the book isn't going to work properly. It's not right. It was ill-conceived. It doesn't fit. It's too bleak. It's too cumbersome. It is not consistent with the characterization of the protagonist and so on and so forth. And so what this means uh, is a variety of things. For one thing, it means that the trip I took in September to Israel, some of you will uh, recall this, the three-day whirlwind trip that I took to the Holy Land for research, that might have been for nothing. <laughs> Which makes me feel like a complete moron. Uh, all the money I spent, all of the preparation, all of the research, 15 hours in coach, going and coming, jet lag, etc. It is absurd, and it makes me want to break things. It makes me want to drive at 150 miles an hour through the desert directly into the sun. It makes me want to run as fast as I can to the bottom of the ocean. So there's that. And then there's just the simple fact that the book is going to require some significant reworking and that it won't be done for a while. And all along, I've been sitting here thinking that I was close, that I was almost to the finish line. But uh, no, that's not the case. Unless I wake up tomorrow and something changes radically. But I don't think it's gonna. So, this is normal. That's what I tell myself. This is all part of the fun. This is what happens to me anyway in trying to write creatively. This is it. I would appear to be in it. It is happening and I'm going to keep going. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be melodramatic. I'm not going to be melodramatic. I'm just going to work doggedly in a concentrated manner. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Susan Strait. She is the author of several books. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award. She has won a Guggenheim. She has won a Lannan Prize. She lives in Riverside, California, and writes about Riverside. And her latest novel, Between Heaven and Here, is now available from McSweeney's. Uh, it is a great pleasure to have her here on this program and I should say that uh, I got to talk to her this week in the middle of all this chaos, and it was a great comfort to talk with her. So let's get right to it. This is my conversation with the lovely and talented Susan Strait. I was born in, at Riverside Community Hospital, which is three blocks from my house, where I've lived for the last 25 years. Everyone was born there. Um, my ex-husband was born there. Everyone in our neighborhood was born there pretty much. And so people don't leave generally that much. Well, across the street from me is someone who just told me her um, her mom had just died. She's lived across from me for 18 years. Her dad was a boxer in Oakland. Her mom and dad met in Oakland, and they got married, and two days later he shipped out for the Korean War. She's Irish-American. Um, but her ex-husband was born in San Bernardino, you know, and so people don't go very far. It's funny. Um, on Friday I'm going to the football game from my high school, John W. North High School, and I'll probably see two, three hundred people that I've known, you know, for my whole life. And we're watching people's grandkids play. Um, our cousins' grandkids are all now playing football. So my daughter was homecoming princess for the other high school on Saturday, and she got to see her cousins. And she hadn't seen my ex-husband's cousin Jody, who's fifty-five. Her grandkids are playing football. Jody came to the game, and when she saw my youngest daughter, she started crying. And she said, oh, she looks so beautiful. She just looks just like my mama, who died when she was only 51. So, I mean, that's how it is to live where we live. That's nice. It is really nice. And Rosette went and hugged all her cousins. And I think she had tears in her eyes, too, because it was such a thrill for them to see a black homecoming princess, first of all. But to see how she's 17 and suddenly she looks like Jody's mom when she was 17. So, wait, your daughter's black? Uh, so my ex-husband looks like Shaquille O'Neal, but a little shorter. Oh, really? Yeah. He's how, how tall is he? He's six four, and he weighs three ten. Oh wow, that's a big guy. He's yeah, he's a former correctional officer too. Okay, that doesn't help with the whole intimidation factor. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but that your daughter is the homecoming princess. Her boyfriends must be terrified. There are no boyfriends. Oh, there are no boyfriends. <laughs> no. The middle. <laughs> what about the had... what about the homecoming prince? What what about him? Yeah, she just found one. She just found one. Okay. <laughs> um. The oldest daughter is 23, my middle daughter is 21, and the youngest one is 17. The middle daughter has had some boyfriends, and they definitely had to go through the gauntlet. Uh, the first boyfriend, I think, was in the ninth grade. 
And unfortunately, she decided to introduce him to the family during Memorial Day uh, barbecue, which meant like 400 Simses. And he came in the afternoon when everybody had a lot of beer. <laughs> so there were, there was the dad, you know, my ex-husband, his three brothers and four cousins, and nobody weighs under, under 300 pounds. Wow. So they were all standing in a row. And they fun. were, and they were a little boozy. <laughs> they were a little angry that he was even there. <laughs> it was a long day for him. Yeah. I actually respected him a lot for, for surviving that. Yeah. He was a ninth grader. Was he was right? a ninth grader. That takes He's him. a big football player now, so it was okay. But okay. he wasn't quite so big back then, and I just remember watching him. And then they said, well, you know who you really have to be scared of? It's not It's not us. And then they all pointed at me, <laughs> which was true. Really? Do you have like that side of you? Like, Are you very protective? And Yeah. Yeah. See? It's unassuming, but there's some toughness there. And I don't want to say Mama Grizzly just because I don't want to somehow invoke Sarah Palin, but you know what I'm saying. Like, Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> You know what I mean. Like uh, she paints her fingernails. Who does? Sarah Palin. Does she? She does the beauty thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I don't like her very much. I gotta there be are a lot of uncles, but if I call them, what they like to say is, "You can't uncall me once you call me." So yeah, the girls. The girls are well protected. Wow, They're okay. very pretty. Um, and you have three. Mm-hmm. What was it like to raise three kids? It's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. I have eighty nieces and nephews. I have 20 great nieces and nephews, and I have two great great nieces. Holy cow! So I'm, wait, but where do they I'm all come 52. from? I'm <laughs> 52. Where, yeah, where do they all come from? Like, how does this? How does the math work? Like, it's a lot of people in the family. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but your ex-husband's side of the family has he has three brothers? You said. Uh, he, there are six in his side. Okay. Um, there were there. I had a half brother. I have stepbrothers and sisters, foster brothers and sisters, and then I have one full brother who died uh, 11 years ago. And so he had a daughter. So I have a, a great niece um, from him. I have other nieces and nephews we have from both sides. Okay. But also, you know, I was telling you about Mrs. Aubert. So Mrs. Aubert's daughter, Rivia, married my ex-husband's cousin, Eddie. So their kids are all, call me auntie as well. Oh my goodness. It's a pretty big collection. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, when you drive around town, because like, this is what seems so different, even though Riverside is not that far as the crow flies from Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles feels like a place where everybody's from someplace else. Everything is transient. It's, it seems that way, though there are, of course, are exceptions to the rule, and there are people who have lived there their whole lives, and there are generations you know, you know that does exist here. But just it's not as concentrated, obviously, and um, it doesn't seem like, uh, from a ratio perspective, there are quite as many. But it sounds like in Riverside, you know, when you drive around town or you walk around town, you're seeing people that you grew up with. You're seeing... Everywhere you go, you know everybody. Is that the way that it is? I think Riverside's representative of a really interesting kind of place in California, but really all over the nation, too. If When I went to Plaquemine, I mean, there were people there that I met three generations back. And when I went to Plaquemine Parish, for example, I met people who'd been there since, you know, 1880. Yeah. I think Riverside, Fresno, Bakersfield, Stockton. I love going to Oxnard. I love going out to... um. If, when you think about it, going out to the, all the different towns, even if you go to certain parts of Orange County, like Santa Ana, you have people who've been there for five generations. So I think Riverside is representative of that kind of city. It's 300,000 people, but yeah, it's like it's a collection of small villages. I think I've traveled all over the state in the last five years. I was just writing an essay about Ross McDonald uh, because I re- I've 
And is he rude? I mean, I know he lived here and wrote about he Los Angeles, about, but he wrote about he, California. Is he originally he, from here? He was born in San Francisco. He was okay. And so he has names for his different versions of Santa Barbara, L.A. and San Francisco don't have stand-ins, but the other towns do. And that that actually was part of the reason that I created Rio Seco. I didn't want my Riverside to be bound by actual geography or place. And I wanted it to be like his version of Santa Teresa, which is his Santa Barbara. Okay. So, yeah. So, so just for people listening, Rio Seco in your work is a stand-in for Riverside. It is. And I, I realized uh, when I was driving around, like I said, these past five years, that I have tourmaline, which was a sort of a stand-in for a tiny little town near Cabazon out in the desert. But then Mecca was real. The Salton Sea was real. And then I have Rio Seco. But Colton is real. San Bernardino is real. The other, the places that are around the places. And that's really the way Ross McDonald does it. That's the way Faulkner does it, too. I didn't read Faulkner until after I had begun writing about Rio Seco, the fictional Rio Seco. But when I learned about Faulkner and I looked at the, the geography of what he was doing, it was that way, as was Flannery O'Connor. Um, Louise Erdrich uh, comes to mind, too, because there are lots of little towns in her work. And some are fictional and some are, are non not not made up. But yeah, I, I, I was driving around California and I was thinking of towns like Lindsay, you know, which is where the olives come from. Or if you go to old Paso Robles, now it's wine country, but I met people who'd been in Paso Robles, you know, since 1910. So I like that part of California. I love the fact, and even though my kids hate it, you know, every time we go to the grocery store, we're going to see somebody that I've known since I was five. So they just don't want to come to the store anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, you get stuck. I mean, Maybe you get the... stuck for an hour and they'll be like, I have homework. So now that they drive, you know, now that everybody drives, they go to the store because they don't want me to go to the store because I'll be gone for two hours. Right. Well, and I'll that's... come back and say, oh my goodness, I ran into cousin Terry <laughs> and she told me this and she told me that. But that's that's why I'm so lucky. That's where all these stories come from. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to say like, because I, I go back and forth and I, I can't help but idealize living in a community where you know a lot of people where there's a feeling of real community and a feeling of, of the close knittedness as opposed to in Los Angeles where I have uh, a lot of good friends, but I feel like it's difficult to socialize just to get across town and to organize and to make a plan. And I, I don't see people, you know, it's very easily, very easy to become isolated in a big city. Strangely it's ab- enough. absolutely true though. And it's fascinating to me because I've been on the road for this new book when I'm in a place like San Francisco, or last week I was in Eugene, and when I'm in Los Angeles, I am utterly and completely alone. And I am never alone at home. So for me, it's it's the opposite. I, I walk for four or five hours. I write essays. I write in my notebook. At home, people come over from 7.30 in the morning until midnight. It, I'm The house is always full of people. So when do you get work done? So I get in my car, and I, I drive to an orange grove, or I drive to a park, or sometimes I just seriously just pull over on a street like a dirt road and I sit there for an hour and I write in the notebook. And then after everybody's done coming over and I lock the door around midnight, then I type it into the computer. And if I'm alone for a long stretch of time, which doesn't happen very often, um, then I can start thinking about the shape of a story. But I will always refer back to the handwritten notes. I'll have maybe 20 pages handwritten already of whatever story it is. And then I'll start putting it together on the huge ancient desktop we also only have one computer, so I mean, everybody's in there watching like bad lip reading and funnier die. So after they're done showing me all the new stuff, like Black Siri, which 
is really funny. Then when everyone's finally done, and, and we only have one TV and we have one computer, so when everybody's finished, um, it's usually really late at night. I have a cup of tea, and then I'll write between midnight and maybe 2, 3 in the morning. Oh but I can God. only do that for a couple of nights a week now. Okay. So you do, Otherwise, I'll be too tired. I was going to say, so, but it, you know, it's, a, it's inspiring and it's a little humbling because you've got all this stuff going on. You've got three kids. You've got teaching. You've got a busy life, and you're still managing to crank out books. You've written several books. Uh, and are you saying that you wrote most, if not all, most, if not all of this novel and other novels sitting in your car? The last three novels I wrote mostly in my car. I, this is my eighth book between heaven and here. And, uh, this trilogy, which I started writing in, I really started writing it in about 2001. Um, I, I wrote probably 80% of each of those in, on legal pads, on little tiny notebooks. I have I have a part of A Million Nightingales, which the part that takes place during slavery in Plaquemine Parish in starts in 1811. I have a note that I found written on the back of a Disneyland day pass while I was waiting for two hours for my kids to be in line with a ride, and my mom didn't want to go on the ride. So she sat on the bench next to me, and she just stared at the entrance of the ride, waiting for them to come out because she was worried about them. And during that like two hours of conversation when she would take a break, I was writing on this Disneyland day pass. <laughs> so I have little pieces of this mother who was a slave worrying about her, her daughter because she was out of her sight and it translated in the strangest way. Um, so I was sort of thinking about the ferocity of all these moms that I'd written about. I have things written, a lot of things written on the magazine insert cards you know i would be somewhere and at the doctor's office and it'd be three hour wait somebody would break a toe or whatever you could you can really get a fit a lot on those little magazine insert cards that fall out of like runner's world right like (laughs) why do they always have the shittiest magazines at doctor's offices just give me something good i'll read anything though and if the if the insert card falls out then i have about 50 of those for the middle book take one candlelight room Uh, i had a kid who tore her acl playing basketball so there were a lot of doctor's office visits so you're just, this is the thing though, is that there's a tenacity to you and also just a, there's just no excuses when, when you have time, you use it, you write, I don't know. I, I think I speak from my own experience and I think there are a lot of people out there who need conditions to be right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like writers can get neurotic and finicky about that and it's gotta be just the right time, but you're just like sitting at Disneyland, scribbling on the back of a ticket, or you're pulling over to the side of the road and scribbling into a notepad for 45 minutes and you're getting books done this way. So there, A, you're just using whatever time you have and you're making the most of it, but B, you have to be consistent with it too. I mean, you are finding time most days to at least get some words down. I mean, it's, it's just, that's what I like to do. If, if I can't write or I can't read, I feel really sad. My oldest kid has to read every day um, as well. She She's in Austin, Texas. She's working for AmeriCorps. She's completely broke. She just called me an hour, an hour ago. Um, she just voted in Texas for the first time. She calls me every day, and we're the most alike when it comes to that. We have to read every day, and we can't be around people constantly. So everybody can see in our faces when we've had enough. And she and I will just go sit in you know, separate corners of the room, and we have to be reading all the time. And that's how I've been since I was little. So, I mean, I like writing in the same way. It's an obsession for, for me, for sure. Is it ever hard for you? No. I mean, I never get enough time to do it. If I have time, like once all those kids are gone and if I were ever quiet, 
I try to imagine myself at a writer's colony. I think it would be disastrous. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> because too you're much right. time. It would be, what would I do then? And I'm also, I, I'm really worried. I'm not good at being alone. I like complaining about everybody coming to the house so that when I have that hour, I want to write so badly. But what you just said is true. What if I'm the opposite? Um, what if that, what if next year when the last kid finally goes off and also my nephew doesn't live with me anymore now, what if, you know, what if I can't stand being alone? What if I stop writing? I don't think it'll happen, but you never know. Yeah, but you've got that whole, that's the thing. You have that whole community around you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, obviously it won't be exactly the same because the house won't be as, you know, as busy as it once was. Somebody will be at the house. Somebody will be, you'll, you'll see people. All you have to do is go to the drugstore. Well, all I have to do is be in the front yard. Right. But, um, <laughs> I just wrote an essay for the New York times about my neighbor, my other next door neighbor, uh, who's a, just been a surrogate mom for the third time. She has five kids and three grandkids, and she's delivered three babies for couples. And uh, it was after the, the debate where uh, single motherhood was being called into question. And I realized that, that one of Mitt Romney's sons had had uh, all of his kids do surrogacy. So anyway, I wrote about her. She comes over every day. I can't. You're right. It won't be quiet. Um, we like to hang out. That's something else, though, is it to be a surrogate. It's really, it's really crazy. This last time she was carrying triplets. Oh my god! She was god. carrying three girls, and two of them How did, but I mean, were not it... viable, and they were absorbed back into the womb, which is what happens. And so she's carrying one girl, but she got really, really uncomfortable and really big. So I was writing about. We were all trying to take care of her on the block. I was pruning her roses and pruning her flowers so she wouldn't have to bend over, and we were taking her food. And then it's just so strange that you know she goes and delivers a baby, and she comes home and. She's never held the baby or really, she looks at the baby, but all the, all of her kids, she has, you know, she has like three grandkids at the house too. And then she has, um, her youngest three. So what does she, she does it for income Does she do, I mean, yeah. she, and she does it to help people, obviously. I mean, she does it for the money. She does it for the money. Well, she, she, it, it's, is it emotionally? I mean, I know physically it's difficult and obviously all not the, emotionally difficult at all. She told me, but physically it's really hard. Okay. See, I, 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 I imagine it's really fascinating that she rents out her body. So I wrote about that. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was really crazy because it's such a growing industry too, and people don't pay attention. They're like, "Oh, surrogate mom," making fun of what it is. I watched her, you know, being incredible pain. This was during the summertime. Her air conditioner broke. Her dryer is broken right now, so she's hanging up her laundry in the backyard, and she was carrying a baby for a wealthy couple. And I thought that was very strange. Oh my God! They better be paying her well. That's all I got to say. Well, she she made thirty five thousand for the first one, fifty for the second one, and thirty five for this one. But you have to remember, you're you're pregnant for ten months, really. That's not it enough. It takes three more months to recover, and you could die. There's that part that people forget. Oh, that's right, you could die. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think anything is enough to do it. But Whew. she's going to do it one more time. Wow. That's unbelievable. It is. So I, I, I read nonfiction about things that happen in the neighborhood or things like that too. So I'm really lucky, I think. Well, and this is the thing. Okay. So this brings me to, uh, I guess, like a natural uh, question with regard to your work is, you know, obviously when you're, go when you're writing about Louisiana, you have to get out of your, uh, you know, your, your comfort zone or your hometown or whatever and go off and do some, at least some experiential research. But when you're talking about, uh, Rio Seco and you're writing about this area and you, and you, you have all these people in your life who have been there for so long and it's just part of the air that you breathe. And, 
do you have to do research or is all this stuff just sort of? It's it's such an interesting question because it changes with every book. And, and the, the genesis for this trilogy was in these three different images that I had in my head. And one was a, a, a friend's dad, Mr. Gaynor. He came and put a roof on our house. Oh, it was probably 20 years ago. No, maybe yeah, maybe 18 years ago because the kids remember him coming over. He, he was putting a roof on the house, and then he used to come over after that and have me write letters for the Veterans Administration for him. He had lost part of his little finger um, during the Korean War, not even in Korea, but when he was in at Camp Polk in Louisiana. Mr. Gaynor was from Florida, and uh, so he, he couldn't read or write, and he had me write these letters. And then we would sit on the porch talking. And I grew up with his sons. Um, I'm still uh, best friends with, with one of his sons. So one day he told me this story about being hungry. And my kids were terrified of Mr. Gaynor because he had this burnished brown skin. He was part Indian, part white, and part black. He has these turquoise eyes, bright, bright turquoise eyes. So anyway, they would run to the back of the house because he would always tell scary stories and he had these turquoise eyes. He said his father was thrown off of a wooden cart carrying barrels of turpentine from the pine forest when his mom was pregnant with him. So by the time he was seven, he said he was really hungry all the time. He was starving. So he walked into the woods, into the forest with a hammer where he knew there was a pig. I realized that now that I'm saying it, I don't know if the pig belonged to somebody or if it was a wild pig. More than likely it belonged to someone and it was out in the woods in a pen in the fall. He killed the pig with a hammer and then he dragged it miles back to his mom's yard and he put it in the yard and he said, cook me some meat. I'm tired of being hungry. So he was seven when he, when he did, when he did this. Oh my God. So I imagined, and anyway, he was a man that we were, he was really strict. He was a roofer. He was really scary. I was trying to imagine him being seven and how he must've felt and how his mother must've felt. So I was thinking about that story, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then the other story actually is an L.A. story. Uh, When I was in L.A., uh, when I was in college, I used to ride the bus um, to downtown from South Los Angeles. You went to to USC? I went to USC. Right. So I used to catch the bus on Figueroa and ride downtown. So I was 18, and I rode the bus with the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. you, You know, Beyonce is beautiful. This woman was twice as beautiful as Beyonce. Wow. Twice as beautiful as Lena Horne. Black woman? She had skin like hammered gold. Ugh. And she had these beautiful eyebrows. They were like hummingbird tail feathers. And she had this long black hair. And she wore it in a very tight bun on the top of her head. And back then, how old are you? I'm 37. Yeah. I had to think about that for I'm a second. I'm 52. I just turned 52 on Friday. So this well, would have birthday. been... Thank you. This would have been 19, 1979. So we were wearing these crazy, ugly, you know, clothes. Like she had a brown suit jacket on often and a brown high-waisted pair of, of knit pants. So everybody would follow her onto the bus, these men. And they would just say, baby, just give me a chance. If you just give me one chance, you know, I'll rock your world. I'll change your life. I'll take care of you. They would write their phone numbers and roll them up on little pieces of paper and slide them in between her fingers while she's sitting on the bus, completely ignoring them. She didn't even want to look at them. She was that beautiful. Well, she was tired of everybody following her around. God. She would get off the bus and people would follow her down the, you know, men would follow her down the sidewalk. In fact, the bus got robbed one day. That was 
It was tough times back then. What she? I mean, you'd think she'd have a ride. She'd have a kid, someone no, driving her around. <laughs> I'm saying when when I used to ride that bus yeah. downtown, one day guys got on with, a guy got on with a gun and he just like went around to all of us and you had to put your stuff in in his bag, and they just got off the bus. So anyway, she just looked so. I think so tired of being an object. And I knew in my head, because I was completely anonymous looking, watching her, that no one would ever say those things to me. But I realized that it was hard to be her because nobody really wanted to love her. They wanted to own her, to sort of have her. And my children are that beautiful too. And I have watched this happen. Are they really? They're they're just stunningly beautiful. Well, and, and people follow that middle kid around and throw phone numbers into her open car window and follow her in here in LA and stalk her. And, you know, it's, it's very strange to watch. Beauty is strange when people are physically like really physically striking. Um, it's a, it's a strange power and it also has an element of a curse to it. I guess it sounds like it to me when I watch, um, a beautiful woman like that, I thought that no one would love her for herself. So in any case, she was on my mind too. And the last part was uh, was that this woman was found dead in a shopping cart. Uh, 1995, I'm thinking it was. I asked my brother-in-law because I was talking about it. Her body was left at the end of my father-in-law's street. And I was trying to find a newspaper article about it uh, two years ago because I was working on Between Heaven and Here, which starts with this beautiful woman being found dead in a shopping cart. And I couldn't find the article anywhere. It was a little paragraph that I remember reading because I had I drive past that corner every day, every single day on my way to work. So I was talking to my brother-in-law one night um, in front of my father-in-law's house, and he's like, oh, yeah, sis, don't you remember? I found her body. I had completely forgotten that he told me about it. So she was a young um, girl. She was 17, and she was pregnant. Her boyfriend had been involved in a drug dispute, and someone killed her to send him a message, which was terrible. Ugh. And her mother was really upset and said, no one's ever going to care who killed my daughter because she was just a pregnant black girl. And the police aren't going to care. So that those three things together, Glorette was the beautiful woman, and she was killed in an alley, and her body's put in the shopping cart. And Mr. Gaynor's story about the pig became Glorette's father's story on the banks of the Mississippi River um, during the 1927 flood in Louisiana. So... Somehow it took me all those years to be able to to put those things together. Once I did that, I was writing by hand still. I was writing Mr. Gaynor's story by hand. In fact, Mr. Gaynor died the day that book was delivered to my house. The day the box was dropped off. He'd been in the hospital for several days, and uh, his son called me about two hours after the book was dropped off, and Mr. Gaynor had died. So Weird. Synchronicities. It was was being at his funeral was very, um, it was really sad. And looking at him and remembering how fierce he was, it's so sad when you look at someone in a coffin and you say goodbye. And you remember, especially if it was someone who was so scary and so full of life and told these amazing stories, that was really sad. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's unbelievable. And it, it's, it's interesting, too, how uh, the gestation period for a book or any creative work uh, happens, you know, and, and you, you can't really force it, can you? You know what I'm saying? Like you can, you can sit there and play with these different pieces, but it, it sort of has to take its own time. Do you think so? You're the only person that ever has given me the gestation. I usually say that when, when people ask me about writing, I learned that word from James Baldwin, 
He referred to it as that. Did he? He was. Uh, uh, I was lucky enough to study with him. Yeah, I was going to. I was going to ask you about that because that's a great. That's a great story. Well, and that that's the story he gave me. My ex husband was out there playing basketball with Skip. James Baldwin had a uh, a driver named Rico and a secretary named Skip, and they were probably like thirty, and I was twenty two, and my husband was twenty three. And we were in Massachusetts in graduate school. And so Skip and Rico were always obsessed with playing basketball with Dwayne. So we would have to go to James Baldwin's house, and they'd be out there in the driveway playing basketball, having cleared the snow. And James Baldwin and I would sit in the house and talk. What was, was he like? It was amazing. Oh, Wait, no, was he your teacher? Or was this he just was a, my teacher. He was your teacher, okay. And he was my teacher, and we became friends partly through Skip and Rico. We started, I mean, there weren't a lot of black guys hanging out in Amherst, in fact, my husband got treated pretty badly, and Skip and Rico and James Baldwin got really upset about it. He had class in a bar one night, and they wouldn't let us in the bar because we had California driver's licenses. They wouldn't let Dwayne in the bar because he was a six foot four, two hundred pound black guy from California. And Skip and Rico got pretty upset, so they went and hung out, and that's how they all got close. James Baldwin was so kind to me; he never said, "You can't write about this," or "What are you doing writing about?" That Instead, he's the one who taught me the two most important things that I like to pass on. One was that whole gestational period. He said the worst part is carrying the story around. That's where I'm at right You're now. You're just carrying it around. Ugh. And you know what's funny? Here, so he's a, a gay black man, about 5'5", five, five, tiny. He would sit at my... With those heavy-lidded eyes. Heavy-lidded yeah. eyes and very, very soft but deep voice. And he came over for dinner one night. And uh, it was really funny. Suddenly there was this huge party in our studio married student housing apartment. I had made lasagna, but he didn't eat a bite of lasagna. He just drank Johnny Walker, Black Label. And I had made brownies, so he ate brownies. And he was sort of walking around looking at our apartment. And I had an, this little Smith Corona typewriter, which I still have, that my mom gave me when I was 17. And grad that was my high school graduation present she wanted me to be a sports writer so she could meet vin scully <laughs> legendary daughters announcer right right it's quite the family legend um that was her plan her plan was not for me to write fiction not at all but he looked at the typewriter and above it i had this handwritten piece of paper taped to the window and it said with the rhythm it takes to dance to what we have to live through you can dance underwater and not get wet and that's from the song aqua boogie by parliament funkadelic so James Bowen said, what, what is that? Like, who wrote that? And I told him it was George Clinton. And he said, that's the most profound thing I've ever read. And I Say it again. With the rhythm it takes to dance to what we have to live through, you can dance underwater and not get wet. It's from a song. We, it's a, like a nine-minute song. Once you finish dancing to that song, you're completely covered with sweat, which is the joke. <laughs> right. So it's the title of my first book, yeah. Uncle Boogie. Right. And it's the epigraph. I paid George Clinton $234 to use it. Did you really? Yeah, I did. You had to pay him? Well, yeah. It was his lyrics. Right. I used to always pay for my lyrics. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I know that like when you use lyrics in a, in a I mean, uh, going through this with my novel, when it went to the lawyers or whatever, and they were vetting it, I remember having, I had. You have two lines. Yeah. It's You're like, allowed to use two lines, but I wanted those three lines and I didn't mind arranging them the way they were supposed to be arranged. And I paid $234 to George Clinton. I remember it so vividly. And then for um, Blacker Than a Thousand Midnights, I used Shaka Khan, Move Me No Mountain, and I paid Shaka Khan. And then there's some House of Pain lyrics, but I didn't... There's House of Pain lyrics in the Gettin' Place, but I think it was not... There, there weren't enough for me to have to worry about it. And then I decided to write my own blues lyrics 
for the Get in Place because Mr. Gaynor and all of his friends, they used to play those low-down, dirty blues at this place called The Place. <laughs> it was a club it's called, called The Place. The Place. Nice. It was quite famous. Uh, Etta James used to play there, and Ike and Tina Turner would In go Riverside? there after hours. This was after hours. After they finished their concerts, they would go to The Place. In Riverside? It, yeah, it's right down the street from my house. Oh, okay. So it was a it was a club, and um, I was hanging out with the owner actually three weeks ago. We were talking about his first love was Jody, our cousin Jody's mom, the one that she was crying over the other night. That was his first love, but he couldn't have her because he was dating Clarence Muse's daughter. Clarence Muse was a famous black actor. Anyway, at the place, they used to play those low-down blues, and so I wrote blues lyrics like that because you're totally right. Otherwise, you have to pay. Interesting. So you James know, you're Baldwin- making, But you're making Riverside <laughs> sound... Like this is the this is the function of great writing and great storytelling is that you're making it sound like the most fascinating place in the world. It is and, to me, and it is to you. And like, but the thing is, is that like popular perception, especially in Southern California, uh, you know, Riverside, it's it's troubled. It's the methamphetamine capital of the state, or whatever. The, you know, the, it was. It was, but no longer is. I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> Maybe. But, but you know, like the Inland Empire, or whatever, has all these different. I know um, identities attached to it, and. They're very they're very superficial. The guy painting my house right now, I left tacos for them, is my brother's best friend. They've known each other since they were 18. And his name's Gary, and he's from Pennsylvania. And he came out to Riverside when he was 18 to stay with his brother. And last week, or the week before last, he was pissed off. Gary's a white guy. He's got a scruffy beard. He's a master house painter. And he's my neighbor. So he went to the L.A. County Fair, which is in Pomona. And he and his wife were thinking maybe they were going to buy a spa, which I thought was hilarious. Like a hot tub? Yeah, like a hot tub, which we thought was funny. So here's how he got talked out of it. He went to look at the spa, and I had just paid him for some of the house painting. And so he had some cash. And the guy starts writing down his information and said, where are you from? And Gary said, Riverside. And the guy said, River scum. So then Gary said, I'm going to ask you right now where you're from. And then the guy looked at Gary and decided he didn't want to talk to him anymore. So Gary said, I asked you where you were from. And the guy ignored Gary and handed the card to Gary's wife. And Gary snatched all the cards off the top of the table and threw them on the floor. And then they walked away. So it's definitely, yeah. I mean, that's what people think about Riverside. And sometimes it's it's not fun. Of course, I said to Gary, but you didn't buy the spa. And that makes you a better person. <laughs> that we would have had to make fun of you because... <laughs> right. who, a hot tub? We would have just had to laugh at you. And he said, yeah, I guess I dodged a bullet because I got mad. So. Wow. No, and what about, um, you know, the, 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 there's obviously a lot of the seedier elements that show up in Rio Seco. You know, you're obviously working from, uh, like you're talking about, like Lorette's murder and the woman found in the shopping cart. I mean, these things are there and you do process them through your work. Um, That's why I write every day. Is to deal with Because otherwise I'm really sad. Is it, I mean, is, but is it that pervasive there? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, is the it's pervasive everywhere? It's pervasive everywhere. Think about it. Somebody's dying everywhere. Somebody's dying on a block everywhere. And if not, somebody's sad or someone's unhappy or Homeless they miss and- their mother or, you know, their mother's in the next room and they hate their mother. So there's always something to write about. But for me, it's definitely been the sadness of something like that. Mr. Gaynor's story was not my story, but Mr. Gaynor told me that story several times until it became a way that I understood something about his son. Can you imagine how intense 
that memory must be must have been imprinted on Mr. Gaynor's brain to be seven years old and to walk into a forest with a hammer. I know. Hungry. And kill the pig. And to kill a pig. To kill a pig with a hammer when you're seven is gnarly. Well, here's what's interesting. I was telling you that my father-in-law, um, they came from Tulsa, and they settled in historic uh, Black Los Angeles, 21st and Central. Um, back then, Central Avenue was, you know, the hub of all the music and jazz. In fact, Jack Kerouac wrote this one section of On the Road about Central Avenue, and my oldest daughter found it and was making sort of fun of it because he talks about this mulatto woman and she's like, Oh, so you wanted to hang out with me, Jack. Okay. (laughs) But I wasn't born yet. But that part of 21st and central, they were brought to Los Angeles by his aunt, aunt Jenny, who had survived terrible, terrible things that had happened to her. And she never had children. That's how much bad stuff had happened to her. Like what kind of stuff? Physically. She'd been attacked. She'd been abused. She left Tulsa, came to Los Angeles to stay with her brother-in-law, and she eventually brought all of her half-sister's kids from Tulsa where they were starving because their father had died. They had no food. So you can imagine that all of these men lived in Los Angeles. They eventually all came when they were, you know, teenagers. They lived on 21st and Central. They lived in attics. They lived in back bedrooms. They lived in garages. So one of our uncles became... Uh, one of the first uh, lead engineers for Department of Water and Power. One was one of the first black sheriffs. One was a letter carrier. Um, and then my father-in-law is the one who settled in Riverside. He didn't want to live in Los Angeles. And when you think about the stories that they tell, they would joke around Super Bowl Sunday was in Inglewood. We would go, Super Bowl Sunday is like one of the national holidays in our family. Sure. You might have 200 people for Super Bowl Sunday at our house. Are so, you a big football fan? We're all big football fans. You are? Okay. So who's your team? My team right now? Yeah. LA doesn't have a team. Okay. I was just going to say, I don't know if you're like a San Diego fan. Or... No, my ex-husband is a Dolphins fan because his peewee football team when he was 10 was named the Dolphins. That's a really sad brand of loyalty according no, to the kids. But no, but listen, I just had this conversation the other day because I feel like I sort of have to defend my football fandom. And who, who are you? Who's your team? Uh, the Packers. Oh, well, that's a good team to be a fan of. Yeah, but I was the thing about it, and this is the point I would make to your husband's fan, you know, fandom uh, of the Dolphins is the fact that I don't, I don't know if it's, it would be possible for me to really become intensely bonded to a team at this age, or, or frankly, like oh, once yeah. I got past the age of eighteen, like, but when you're a kid, you're totally right. It's, and it can it's be for the most arbitrary reason, intrinsically bound in your DNA after and, that. Yeah, it happened right. to me when I was like four years old, and I, I can, I mean. He's that that he's a Dolphins fan, and and the truth is we had the LA Rams, so that's who we grew up watching. Um, I can't love the Chargers because they're just not close enough geographically, but that's who you're supposed to like. But my neighborhood, of course, is going to be Raiders fans because that's the kind of place where I live because they want Raiders gear. But yeah, the the funny thing is Super Bowl Sunday. One time when I was about eighteen, because I I met my future husband in the eighth grade, so we'd known each other forever. I think I was about eighteen or nineteen, and we were at Super Bowl Sunday. And they were talking about which was their least favorite kind of meat. All the uncles. They had this elaborate discussion because they had had to kill everything in Tulsa because they were so hungry. Oh, my God. So possum, raccoon, squirrel, rabbit, everything, right? So my father-in-law hated squirrels because he said you had to work so hard, so many bones to get so little meat. And when you think about it, they were joking. They said, by the time we left Oklahoma, 
there was nothing moving because we had killed it all and eaten it all. And we used to just look at them. And here were men. The reason they were telling us those stories, they, they were sitting around telling the stories knowing we were listening, not telling them to us. Because over there on the table where I was with the ants, we had pig's feet, spaghetti, ribs. You know, you had all this food. And that meant a lot to them because they remembered literally being so starving that Uncle Bobby, who's still alive and lives in um, Apple Valley, Uncle Bobby told us we were all together, I think, six months ago. And Uncle Bobby had tears in his eyes and he was crying because people were making fun of food stamps and welfare at the beginning of this presidential election. And Uncle Bobby said, when we were in Tulsa, I would lie awake at night and listen to my mother cry in the next room and pray to God to give us one meal for the next day because she was watching us starve to death. And this, he had huge tears in his eyes. And he said there was no welfare. You know, there, was, there were no food stamps. There was just us starving and trying to catch something to eat in the morning. And when you hear somebody, you know, tell you that story when you're related to them, to have my kids stand there and listen to that, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing is so that nobody at my house says, oh, I'm not going to eat such and such because, you know, I'm not hungry. At my house, everybody always ate everything because <laughs> there would be someone who who would say, are you kidding? You know, we would have made that last for seven days. Yeah, That no, one I, chicken breast, that would have fed like 12 people. I remember my grand, my, my dad's dad saved everything. Oh, gosh, yes. They I would mean, save a garage full of my little pieces bike. of foil, right? Yeah. I mean, just everything. Like every all my dad's toys from when he was a kid and his bicycle from his childhood. Like it was all packed up in this garage that wasn't even that big. And I, you know, my dad would be like, you know, dad, you got to get rid of this stuff. And they were worried. They were worried. They were worried. It was depression era. Yeah, I guess right. he survived through that. And then he was what first or second generation American and came from nothing. I think, I think that's what my job as a fiction writer is, is not to preachly tell people stories, but you're right. The gestation period, which we had been talking about, the most important part is the walking around for, for sometimes for weeks, but sometimes for a couple of years, sometimes for five years. And you're just thinking about this image or this story. What's the longest gestation period you've ever had? Oh, well, so for High Wire Moon, it took me five years to write that. And then after that, it took five years to write A Million Nightingales. Because what happened was I, I wrote the last page of Between Heaven and Here. There's a, there's, the, I'm sorry, the last, the last chapter. There's this kid named Victor, and his mom is found dead in the shopping cart. Right. And I thought, well, what happened to his mother? Why is she in a shopping cart? Why would somebody kill her in this alley? And I didn't have any idea why someone had killed her. And it was his grandfather who had rescued him and saved him. So he's living with this ancient man from Louisiana who suddenly tells him this story about killing a pig. And I thought, what the heck? Where, you know, who are these people? Where did they come from? So to do that, I had to figure out who Glorette was, why she was so beautiful, and why her mother had come from Louisiana to California. And then I realized that there was this other story someone had told me about a serial rapist who'd been preying on girls in this small town. And they all had to leave. And they came to California. And this was in 1950. This wasn't in like 1920. So I started thinking about this. And you know what? It took five years of me going back and thinking, well, how did they get to Louisiana? And then I realized I was writing about the original people who'd come from Senegal and they were slaves and the one woman, she's very young and she's given away for a week as a gift to a blonde French sugar broker 
And so she has a child who's half African and half French. And when everybody was joking about anchor babies, remember that? Yeah. <laughs> that phrase stayed in my mind in the way those weird phrases often do, right? Anchor babies. I just thought it's like binders full of women. Right. That's, that's done, right? <laughs> right. That's, that's just a thing. Yeah. So I kept thinking about anchor babies and I thought, but wait, the original anchor babies were slaves. <laughs> Did you guys forget that part? So when we talk about family history and we're talking about Aunt Jenny, her mother was a slave. And that's not something that seems abstract because Uncle Bobby will talk about that. And the man who owned the place, LB, who's 84, when I was at his house three weeks ago, he talked about seeing his grandmother's back covered with whip scars. That's not removed from you know, history for him. That is something he actually saw, and he sat in his living room and told me. So anyway, I... You I, have a very unique vantage. Do you was, realize that? I was lucky because I went over to see LB because of this other thing, and then we were sitting there with my ex-husband for three hours, and it was about 109, and he doesn't have any air conditioning. And we were just sitting in the front room telling stories. But I'm saying that what happened is that that idea to write about slavery was not easy. And what happened is that I had these three beautiful girls, and they were very small back then. Um, they were two. Let's see, they were they were two and five and seven, and they were in school, and everybody was playing with their hair. All the boys were pulling their curls, boing boing boing, and people started telling me, "Oh, they're so pretty, they're never going to have to work." And I was like, "What are you talking about? They're not going to have to work." Look, they're so pretty. Some man's going to take care of them, and all of your, your my maternal instincts were just like, "That's what do you?" They're, they're seven and five and two. That's a terrible thing to say. And white people would say it. Black people would say it. You know, Asian people would say it. Chicano people would say it. It was just this really strange moment for me. So I thought about what it would be like during slavery to have children this beautiful and know that they were going to be sold away from me because they're beautiful. Oh. So then I wrote A Million Nightingales. That took five years. And I went to Louisiana several times. But really it all came from Miss Albert and Miss Thibodeau and Mr. Gaynor and all those stories. So I didn't have to do any research, which goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago. It's I, like I, your life is research. Well, no, it's, it's just hearing those things. But I went to Louisiana five times because I needed to know the weather. I needed to know how cold it would be at a certain time, what the sugar cane was like. Walking in the middle of a sugar cane field, getting all cut up on your arms. I actually have sugar cane in my backyard right now. It's from this guy from Tonga. He brought me some sugar cane from Tonga. And so I was out cutting it with the machete last week because my next door neighbor likes it, the one who was a surrogate mom. They like to <laughs> chew on sugar cane because right. her husband's from El Salvador. So anyway, it will cut you up. You'll come in and you'll just have blood all over your arms. That I had to go to Louisiana and talk to people and hang out and see where Miss Albert was from to be able to write a million night and go. So that took five years. And then Take One Candle took another five years because I still wasn't sure what to do about Victor, the the kid that started everything. So when I finished this summer, I finished Between Heaven and Here. It's 15 years for the three books. That was a long time. Yeah. And, and it didn't torture you at all. And I ask this selfishly because I'm feeling too tortured. I, I, it sounds like you just sort of like patiently deal with it. That's what I need to do. Oh, no, it's, it's very torturous. You're okay. right. Okay, because, yeah. of, because of what you're saying, you're walking around carrying this story and you don't know what to do with it. But think about it. Artists, that, that art is exactly the same for everyone. Since you're a football fan, we could actually hang out on the football level. <laughs> I mean, just look at how many passes Matt Barkley has to throw to Robert Woods every single day, right? Because, you know, every time you watch football, because I have so many 
nieces and nephews and my daughters were athletes and my ex-husband was an athlete, just think about how many free throws you got to shoot. And so I joke with my students and I say, you know, what Kobe's doing at night, he's not watching movies. Kobe's always watching someone else play basketball. That's what he does. Because they're like, what do you, you know, you don't do anything fun. And I say, no, reading is what I do. Writing is what I do. How much much do you read? How much do you read in a day? Well, I mean, sometimes I don't get to read, like I said, and then I'm sad. Plus, I'm a big TV. I'm not even going to lie. I mean, we watch a lot of TV at my house. Okay. We really do. Like, we watched all three Born movies. I love those movies. Remember, it was raining about three weeks ago on a Saturday. All three Borns came on, you know, because Born had just come out, the newborn. So since all three of them came on in a row, and since my middle kid is the Born fan, she said, you should just watch them all three. So I said, okay. So that was six hours. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. And then the oldest kid is a Joss Whedon fan. So sometimes, like one summer, we just had to watch Firefly every day. Because you can only watch one Firefly a day because they're really scary. Okay. And then, yeah. So I'm just saying, like, I watch TV and I read. But I don't have Facebook. And I don't do, like, I don't go out much because I just don't. I mean, so. I think you have a very full life. I think you sound busy. <laughs> but I like to read is what I'm saying. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not torturous. Okay. Because there are times when I was so stuck on a book that what I do is take a break and write an essay. I can't take a break to write a short story because short stories are just as hard, don't you think? Yeah. A short story is just as torturous as a as a novel, it's You need just, to shift gears. Like there's yeah. something ventilating, especially if you're really bogged down in fiction. I, I, I understand that. Like why you would go to an essay to sort of... The essay bre- part of your brain is a completely different part of your brain. Right. Don't you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's... I don't know. I mean, you're working with stuff that's here. You know what I'm saying? Or that right. might be the most obvious way of putting it, but it, it just seems like... I'm not saying essays are easy. Because no. sometimes it takes... I'm trying to write an essay about Aunt Jenny and rape. And I've been working on that for a month. And because of the offhanded rape comments we've been so lucky to hear this past yeah. election season, I kept thinking about Aunt Jenny and some of the things that had happened to her. And I was thinking about many of my own friends who had, had been raped and thinking about sort of how to write that essay. See, and that's the kind of essay that it's not something you toss off. Right. But I still feel as if it works a different part of my brain than fiction does. Fiction is this all-encompassing thing, and when I'm in a novel, I'm thinking about it all the time at some level. If I'm driving, I'm thinking about, well, what about this and what about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dreaming about it. Yeah. But that's why I like to write fiction, because then I'm not worried about the kids, because I don't have <laughs> nightmares about the kids, and I'll be thinking about my characters. Right. If I'm not working on fiction, I have terrible nightmares all the time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's really bad. Like insomnia and stuff like that? No, I wish I could be waking up. No, just really scary Things are when you're little. You know how you're always dreaming that the stranger is chasing you and you can't cry out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always dream that someone's chasing the kids, so wow. it's bad dreams. Like mommy anxiety dreams. Yeah. That's okay. Bad. So here's I'm gonna I'm you gonna you can look forward to that. Yeah, it's gonna be so gonna, much fun for I'm you. I'm gonna I'm gonna I have the insomnia thing, but I, I'm gonna um, I have a question because it seems natural to me, and I could be totally off base, but I'm gonna I'm gonna propose this. Uh, do you believe in ghosts? In Do ghosts? You, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like you carry the spirits of the people who suffer and their stories and their histories. That makes me sound really terrible. No, but no, but it's, it's no, but it sounds, <laughs> it makes I mean, me it sound like I have a terrible life. No, I just, <laughs> like I have some kind of weird gypsy no, no, person. No, but it sounds like maybe you would have 
some belief in that or that maybe these spirits are speaking to you? Like, do you ever think along those supernatural lines or does that not even enter into the equation? Because like, I got to say, I'm not like a super mystical person. I don't have crystals and rocks and all that kind of stuff. But like, I'm open to the possibility that there could be other dimensions out there and there could be people that are using or, you know, that are somehow that you're like a vessel for their stories or you're providing some sort of, uh, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Is that too crazy of a thought? I think my version is much more simplistic than that. (laughs) And that's only because I don't talk often to other writers. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I I do. I don't talk a lot about, about writing because nobody ever asks me at home. They just ask me like, aren't you going to wash the car? Hey, do you have any sugar? You're right. (laughs) But, Here's here's what I think. When we were in Louisiana, we stayed in an old, old house in Plaquemine Parish. My neighbor, Julie, and me, who went down there with me because she wanted to drive the truck and hang out. And uh, we were in a house called Woodland, which it's... Like a B&B? Is that what it was? Well, it's an old house. It's actually, when you look at Southern Comfort, it's the house that's on the Southern Comfort label. Great. Which is really weird. Yeah. And um, it's way it's way south of New Orleans. It's 70 miles south of New Orleans in Plaquemine Parish. It actually wasn't destroyed during Hurricane Katrina, but there was a slave jail there, which is a two it was a two story brick slave jail where Jean Lafitte, the pirate, used to steal people and then sell them to that man, and they stayed in that slave jail. And then the plantation house is now B and B, and you can do fishing trips from there. And there's this little tiny cottage that was within sight. And that's what I based the slave house, which is, and the plantation house, which starts in a million nightingales. And then they end up going back to it during Hurricane Katrina in Take One Candlelight a Room. And then they remember it in Between Heaven and Here. So that house felt pretty haunted to me and Julie. She was convinced it was haunted. And we were there for three days. And the strangest thing was that she was convinced it was haunted. But she was trying to have a baby. And she had brought along her hormone injections and her husband was afraid to give them to her because she would punch him. So I was the only person she would let give them to, which is why she came Wait, on the she trip. she would punch him when he tried to give her the yes. hormone injections? She didn't like needles and she was 5'10 and she had just gotten out of the military and she liked to say she could kill a man with her bare hands. <laughs> so when her husband would approach her with the needle, she would punch him. So I had to give her the injections every night. Like involuntarily? Thigh. Like when someone tickles you punch? Like yeah. that kind of thing? Okay. He wouldn't go near her after right. the first two nights. Yeah. So they came across the street and asked me to do it. And I was like, I'm not a nurse. <laughs> and they said, you you can do this. So I had to learn to give her an injection in her thigh. So that was difficult enough. I was so exhausted after doing that that I went to sleep. She insisted that she saw ghosts. I felt the ghosts when we were standing on the banks of the Mississippi where that slave jail used to be. See, I, I was right. But I don't believe that those ghosts are hanging out with me. The only spirit I feel all the time is my brother who died 11 years ago. And I think about him you know, pretty much like a third of the day still. It doesn't go away that he's gone because he was my only actual full sibling. And we were so close. And he died in a in a really tragic manner. What and, happened? Um, May I ask what happened? He was killed. His friend, his best friend killed someone and then he was killed um, because of that. So in any case, that was that was 11 years ago. And I think about him all the time. So, so that whole thing where my my kids joke about about my brother, because his ashes, some of his ashes are I have them in the kitchen, and I listen to his favorite music. What he helps me with is because he he was a completely off the books person. Like he didn't exist. No social security number, no driver's license, no taxes, 
No, nothing. How? Because he just did stuff that was off the books. Oh, right. Okay. Like he painted houses and he he grew oranges and then he had another crop out there in the groves too. He was famous for his marijuana. He grew like 18 varieties of marijuana. He started growing marijuana when he was 12. He was really good at it. It's a great age to start, you know. He was really good at it. He would really think that this that what the industry is like now would be crazy because, he, of course, he had to do lots of other stuff. But in any case, he he didn't care about anything. He really didn't. He just didn't care. He would say what he wanted. He would do what he wanted. And he could do that. Free I, spirit. I Beyond a free spirit. Yeah. Like, he just he didn't have a driver's license. He just did whatever he wanted. So the <laughs> it's kids, like an anarchist almost, right? Yeah. Well, we had we had this word for it. You know, it was Uncle Jeff style. We figured out what it was eventually. But the kids like to tease me that they don't understand how we came from the same parents at all. Like, how did you two, you know, because here I am. I mean, I I take care of everybody and I'm cooking. And he was really good at that, too. He just was never, ever going to be able to fit into anything. He had to live way out in the middle of the orange groves in a barn. And, yeah, no driver's license, no license plate on the car, unregistered guns, everything. What I realize is that really he's the one that, that makes me able to write. When you think about it, like, I'm going to write what I'm going to write. If people don't want to read it and I don't become famous, I'm okay with it. You don't care? Not really, because... Yeah. I think about it, and I always think, well, my brother would, would completely make fun of that. In fact, my brother didn't have a single tattoo. And this was a long time ago. He used to come watch the, the kids learning to swim at the city pool. And that was the beginning of tattoos, right? Everybody had tattoos. And he used to say, there is nothing you can put on your body. Well, I'm leaving out all the cuss words, just because I am. Yeah. He would tell the girls, there is nothing you can put on your body that hasn't already been put on somebody else's body before. So don't do it. And no matter where you put it, I don't care where it's going to sag. And they'd be like, what about the ankle, Uncle Jeff? And he'd be like, even your ankles are going to sag. <laughs> they were appalled. But he was right, of course. Your ankles do sag. Yeah. Everything sags. And just all, yeah. It's, I mean, and he said, don't even put it on your ankle. And they'd be like, but Uncle Jeff. And he'd say, no, just don't. Well, he'd cuss a lot, but he'd say, don't do it. And he would come over to the house. One day he came over and he had cut himself with a chainsaw on the stomach, but he didn't even notice because he was like, you know, had been doing the pharmaceutical thing and he had come over to trim my tree. What what do you mean he'd been doing the pharmaceutical thing? He'd been doing stuff. Yeah. So he, and plus he was kind of impervious to pain at this point because he'd done so much stuff. So anyway, he went to trim my tree with a chainsaw and the girl saw this huge, you know, he had 18 stitches on his stomach. And he's like, yeah, you can take them out next week. And they're like, that's okay. But he did. He came back and he made them take, he was like, here, take some of the stitches out. So I just mean like there was this way that when people would, when I would, when I got into publishing and I would go to New York or LA and somebody would be really mean to me. I mean, because people are mean, aren't they? They can be, yeah. Go to one of those dinners and somebody would say the equivalent of river scum to me. I didn't want to be Gary, you know, and like throwing on the floor because that would be weird. Um <laughs> So instead, I would just just think about what my brother would say if he were there, you know, and it would always get me through. It was hilarious. But, but you wouldn't ver- you wouldn't verbalize it. You would just kind of let it play in your mind, or sometimes you would verbalize it. No, nope. no, because nope. I, I imagine he would have had choice words, right? He would, but I just think about what he would say, and I don't have to say anything. Or I would say, I remember one time someone was really, really mean and rude. I can't remember who it was. I can't remember if it was an agent or an editor or another writer, but it was a pretty big fancy dinner. This person was so mean, 
you know, just giving me the look and my clothes and I write about Riverside and, you know, people are fond of saying, oh, you live in Riverside. Like, you know, like I have cancer. I'm like, yeah. And they're <laughs> like, how long have you lived there? And I say, well, since my parents had sex, basically. <laughs> I mean, I left for college and then I came right back and they say, why? Why would you do that? Yeah, that's been it. Why? Why? Why go back? Because I was a big chicken and I didn't want to, I would like being at home. And so yeah. then they would say, oh, that's so sad. So I didn't, I would, you know, think about my brother and I'd say, yeah, but, you know, I always have my brother. If I need anything, I could always call my brother. And they're like, what does your brother do? <laughs> You're like, well, he has an Uzi and he has a machete. And he lives in a barn in an orange he grove. He lives in a, in a barn, you know? And I mean, his favorite song is like Running with the Devil by Van Halen. So... I like having him around in case anyone's mean to me. Right. <laughs> that's a conversation. And then Andrew. they would say, that's why I'll never come to Riverside. And I would think, yes, that, that is, that is why. that's why you're not going to come to Riverside. And I'm okay with that. Right. <laughs> so, and I just want to go home now. Oh. And then I would leave LA and go home and go home. Well, I think it's cool to embrace a place and to kind of own it. And you've certainly done that. And it's been so fun to talk with you. I think it's been appalling. You made me sound like a terrible <laughs> palm reader, gypsy no, no, no. I person who lives in a bad neighborhood. It's just a sense that I get. And I'm at a point in my life. I don't know what it is. I've been reading about all this stuff, uh, you know, and I've been thinking. What do you love to read? Oh, I like to read all sorts of different people. But I've been reading about, I mean, this is going to sound really, really crazy. But I honestly don't think that it is. I have been getting so frustrated with the, you know, the election season mm -hmm. and with thinking about humanity and I went off on, last night on Facebook after the debate. I actually wrote this down for the first time oh, no. in kind of an explosion. And I don't know how – I'm not 100% sure how far I would take this. But like when I look at all the difficulties and I look at all uh, the arguing and I look at all the stasis despite all the arguing, how slowly progress happens, if at all, um, I'm at the point where I'm like, I think everybody just needs to – like drop acid or take mushrooms or something like everyone in the country at once, like some sort of absurd idea like that, just to like blow this thing up a little bit. But do you want to know what it's hard to talk about? You no, know? what, what, what happened to me is that I would get so sad in the beginning of the campaign season, the yeah. very beginning yeah. back when the Republican candidates were having their primaries because my kids would be really sad. I mean, I've got kids who are of voting age. Yeah. I've got kids who are black yeah. I've got kids who were listening to people have coded language about food stamps and welfare. And, you know, I have one, like I said, teaching AmeriCorps and one's a senior in college and one's applying to college. And I couldn't do it. So I started doing two things. Yeah. On Tuesdays, which was always primary, always the primary debates or anything was on Tuesdays, remember? Yeah. I would always listen to KLOS, like I told you. Two for Tuesday on KLOS. There you go. I know I'm going to hear some really weird songs that my brother would love. Yeah. And I hear, would hear those songs like the Rolling Stones, Sympathy for the Devil, or my favorite, David Bowie, Changes. Yeah. These children that you spit on are here to change the world. Right. They're immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. All right, that's David Bowie. Then I would go and listen to some George Clinton and some P-Funk. And when you think about it, One Nation Under a Groove, they were all wearing military clothes. This is what I was doing. And at night I would read poetry. So I'm going to tell you, I read this great poem by Diane Wachowski called The Butcher's Apron. And it's about Richard Nixon's brother and uncle. And Richard Nixon's parents had a store in Whittier 
a little old grocery store. Yeah. And Diane Wachowski used to go there and get popsicles. And his uncle would be wearing a bloody butcher's apron. And that was Richard Nixon's family. And I was remembering who Richard Nixon was and where he came from. And I was thinking about now. So maybe that would help. Because what's interesting to me, as far as what you just said, is that I was in San Francisco last week. And apparently, Mitt Romney said something about single moms. I didn't watch the debate because I had an event. And my youngest daughter was so upset that she wrote something about Tumblr about me being a single mom. And her dad and me still talking every day. He already called me when I was on the way here and asked if I left him food on the counter, (laughs) which I did. And she wrote this impassioned paragraph, just one paragraph on Tumblr, about that, that she's, you know, got all these letters from all these colleges, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, that her sister's an honor student on the dean's list at USC, and her other sister graduated with honors from Oberlin College, which, by the way, she wrote her honors thesis on Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins, which I was very proud of. Yeah. She said we were raised by a single mom who's a short blonde woman and a dad who's a six-foot-four black guy that looks like Shaquille O'Neal, and they're still best friends, they get along, and we're just fine. So... I thought that was interesting. It's affecting her in the same way it's affecting you. Yeah. It just, it she just, had to write about it. It's frustration. And you I got to go back to fiction and poetry. Yeah. It'll and help. music. And you got to listen to music. And the sad thing is today it's Tuesday. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to listen to any of the post-debate stuff because we had to watch it last night to do debate bingo. That's what happens when you have a kid in AP Gov class during election season. You get to play debate bingo, which is so not fun. So I'm going to be listening to, to Two for Tuesday KLOS all the way home. Maybe that'll help you. Sounds like a plan. Good luck. <laughs> Diane Wachowski. Poetry is really helpful, too. Go back and read some great Phil Levine poems. Okay. That always helps me. Okay. Well, Susan, uh, best of luck with this book. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I've so enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is the show. That's Susan Strait. Go get her new novel. It is called Between Heaven and Here. It is available now from McSweeney's. You can find Susan online at susanstrait.com. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. If you want to donate a few bucks to help the program, you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com by clicking on Donate up there in the right sidebar. The show has its own Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy, if you would like to read my deeply unsettling personal tweets. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you would like to email me, let me know what you're thinking. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free Other People app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free, and it is the best way to listen to the show, so go get it. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, yeah, uh, I feel the need to clarify something from today's program. The part there at the end about dropping acid when Susan and I were talking about politics, uh, this notion that I seem to have of everybody in the entire American electorate hallucinating collectively, uh, I don't know if I was articulate about that. It's an expression of frustration more than anything, and also a recognition, I think, that our species seems to have lost its way. It seems to have lost touch with something fundamental. We seem to have lost touch with the big mystery, Uh, but I'm certainly not advocating that everybody in America drop acid all at once because that would probably end badly. But, you know, if you have the mental capacity, if you feel confident, uh, we do need some visions in our society. We need some mystical shit to happen. That's what I think. That's where my head is at right now in 2012. Please remember that Cyrano de Bergerac died in an accident involving a falling beam and that Hemingway died one day after Louis Ferdinand Celine. Thanks for listening. 
Uh, I appreciate it. Please go get that app. Please go premium if you know what that means. Please rate and review the show at iTunes if you have a few minutes and so on and so forth. I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, I am now going to go stare at the wreckage that is my novel. I'm going to go sift through the rubble. I'm going to sit there Indian style and stare at it. I'm going to try to stay positive. I'm not going to drink to excess. I am not going to scream in anger at the heavens. I'm not going to trash a hotel room. I am not going to beat my MacBook to death with an aluminum baseball bat. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I might do it.